Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this evening that you have given us. It's uh, good to be with like-minded believers that know your word, that trust you, that obey you, and uh, are fighting against the tide of evil going on in our day, whether that's with even local elections, local school boards, or even the crazy stuff that's going on in our culture. Uh, help us to learn from your word tonight so that we can be more prepared, uh, uh, have more strength, and be able to deal with the spiritual battle that we're in. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, we're studying um, how to survive perilous times, obviously. And where we're at, if I can get back to where I was at, Okay, so uh, this is the, the key verse we're uh, going on off of this semester. And I know it's just one verse, but he's laying out, this is how he survived perilous times, and this is how we're going to survive perilous times. And he, ta- he talks about nine different things. We're in the section called the manner of life, and we're learning that section. Um, we're dabbling a little bit in the book of James and some other passages I'm going to show you tonight about what that looks like. And so we talked about doctrine, that you have to have your theology straight to fight a spiritual battle and to survive perilous times. But their manner of life uh, has, to, has to be in order as well. So we're talking about that. So um, as we have discussed, now let me get back to where we were at. <clears throat> and we were in James... And we were talking about this verse and explaining this just as a kind of a review because it's been about two weeks since we've last met. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And remember, we talked about the proper interpretation is not a Calvinistic Arminian interpretation, but it has to do with a faith that is producing works in the life of the, of the believer, not as a sign that they're saved, but as a sign that they're discipling, that they are ser- that they are growing and maturing in their walk with the Lord. So the Calvinists misinterpret this passage and make it all about salvation. And he is not talking about salvation as we discussed, because he's saying, my brethren, you don't talk about that. Uh, you don't talk about salvation. You're talking about believers. He's not trying to get them saved. He's trying to say, look, Your faith must start producing something in your life, okay? If it's not, it's called what we call an ineffectual faith, a dead faith. And it doesn't mean that the person's not saved. It just means that nothing is coming out of their life anymore. It's stopped. It's rendered inoperative. So it doesn't mean they're safe. So you might have relatives, quite frankly, that got saved when they were very young, right? And they, they were sincere about it. Not that you have to be sincere. It's simply by faith alone, right? But there were kids, maybe at 12 or whatever, or a young adult, they, they, they accepted the Lord. And uh, for some reason, they get off the path. And that's what we call prodigal son living. Now, it's true that there is one category that if you're, you, you can be a false believer, and that's called a, a tear, and you have that category of, uh, of that. But a lot of people, they made decisions in their life, then they get off the path, and they go into prodigal son living. Let me ask you about the, the prodigal son. Was he a son but to, before he left? Okay, so you, you understand the prodigal son was a son before he left. He didn't become a son when he came back. He already was a son. So the parable is not about someone getting saved. The parable is about a believer getting out there in prodigal living and then eventually returning after he wakes up in the pig pen. Okay, so what James is trying to connect to, to all of us, is saying, hey, look, man, okay, now that you've been saved, the expectation and, and what should be occurring in your life is there should be good works that are flowing through you. And that's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says you were saved unto good works. You were saved for works that were already in God's mind of what he wanted you to do, what he wanted you to be. So yes, it is true that God has mapped out your entire life. And what he has done, and he's given you the free will to, to, to do it, whether you, you, you want to do it or not, of doing those good works. He has planned for you. So he has plans uh, uh, in your life of, Here's this, this is what I wanted to do. What, what do I want you to do? 
Okay, so how do, I, how do I ensure that I get to those plans? Well, I do the good works that are laid out before me, and, and I do that with the, the time that I am given. I sacrifice my time. I do it with the gifts I've been given, physical and spiritual. I do that with my experiences, my pain, my trauma, and then that lends me into doing good works, okay, that are prepared beforehand, he says, Okay, your good works are prepared beforehand. Whether you fulfill those good works or not is up to you. Okay, but it's like mapped out. So I'm sure it, in some kind of way at the Bema seat, you're going to see how the good works were mapped out for you. They're gonna, he's going to say, this is your life. This is what I actually had planned for you. And then this is where you lived up to that. And that's where your rewards will come from or lack of uh, based on what he had planned for you to do. To some he gives five talents, to some he gives two, and to some he gives one, right? So you have to live up to the whatever talent you have given. But it comes in the form of good works. You are, in, and so in that sense, now this, this is where something is predetermined. What he wants you to do in his mind and based on the gifts is this. He, has, he wants this for you to do in your life. Okay, but you have the freedom of, of doing it or not doing it. So that so it's the good works that are the plan that has been predetermined, not you, not your salvation. Okay, and you still have the choice of whether to do it or not. So does that make sense? Kind of, I don't want to confuse you with Calvinism, but there are like you know there are things that God has predetermined that would happen that Christ would die on the cross. That was determined uh, that in order to create these creatures, you're going to have to die for them, right? So that's, we knew that Christ had to do this. So in salvation, it's like, okay, here's Brandon, and here's what all that I want him to do based on the ability I give him and based on all the things, the, the, the gifts I give him, okay? Now, Brandon still has a choice of whether or not he's going to do that. So, James is trying to say, hey, look, man, he has believers there that have arrested their good works. They're not living out what they're supposed to be doing in their life. And they have arrested it because they've got into sin and sin arrests good works. Okay, that's, that's the main problem that's going on in the book of James. And he's saying, look, man, if you continue to operate in this level of sin and your faith is not producing something, you're introducing the principle of death into your life. Because sin, the wages of sin is death. And anytime you don't obey, you're disobeying and that introduces sin. Okay, so there's a link, a link between the good works that you're supposed to do, okay, and um, what I just slipped from my mind, the good works are linked to, I just had it, went off the tip of my tongue. What did I say the negative? The negative was, rats, I got, I'm having a senior moment is right, man. Faith. Okay. Okay, got it. Okay, so okay, so so James is correlating good works and faith. Okay, living faith. So when a person has living faith, it correlates to good works. But those those good works also correlate to how the person has gifts and in, is invested by God. In their abilities, okay? So there's a, there's a one-to-one correspondence. So it's not like it's random good works. Those works were actually determined by God for you to accomplish, okay? If that makes sense. So the, the situation then becomes that sin then prevents it. And how, how, how well, it doesn't mean like, like right now, you know, you're in active sin. No, but when you don't cooperate with what you're supposed to be doing, okay? It's not that you're out there robbing banks. Don't get me wrong. Don't get, don't get that wrong. That, that, that definitely stops everything, okay? But it's, it's the fact that 
for most Christians, it's, it's, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And I don't know how many Christians can answer that honestly. Well, I don't know. A lot of people say, well, I just don't have the time or I'm really busy right now, but I want to get to that level. I want to do those good works. And I will when X and Y and Z is over or I get past this or I get past that or I have another season of life. And there's all kinds of excuses for that. And it's like, whoa, wait, time out. So what's, what's happening is your faith that you have currently is not allowing you to complete your mission, okay? You may, you may do a few things here and there, that's good, and okay, great. But no, I'm talking about really what are you tailored made to do, okay? That's what you're missing. That's what a lot of people are missing. They're not doing what they're tailored to do. Now, for instance, if, if, if you have a one talent, maybe, I don't know, and, and your talent is sharpening pencils for the back of the pews, then fine. And, and, and if that's your, your skill set and that's all you have, then God bless you and you're in your groove, okay? So each time you do that, that's great. But also know that if it's not and you're doing that, that is a good work, but it's not the works designed for you. Okay, does that make sense? It is good. You're doing a good thing, but you're not doing according to your gifts. You should be here. You should be doing this, not that. And so the struggle that Christians have is trying to find where their niche is. And so people will say, well, where do I start? You start with good works. Start doing something, okay? Start doing something. And, and then you, what happens is, as you're out there moving and doing something, you actually start getting tailored to where your skill set is. Well, I don't like that one, but I do like this. And I don't like that, but I like this. And before you know it, as you're getting out there, you find the good works that you're destined to do. Okay, And then you find your groove. It's not enough for you just to stir Kool-Aid. Okay, Because if that's not your gift... You're missing out, you know? And so that, that's what I'm trying to get across. That's what James is trying to say. And he's telling them, look, man, you guys, he, he's getting on to him and saying, you guys are getting into sin. That's going to prevent everything. And then you're, you're doing things not according to how you're built. And it's arresting your development. On per, and, and so that, there's, there's where I'm talking about, talking about. It's not about salvation, Okay. And then he talks about them, look, apparently, like I said last week, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. He says, look, you got to stop this nonsense. You got to stop the sin in order to do this stuff. So what happened to the prodigal son? What stopped him doing good works? He wanted to live a riotous life, right? He's out there partying, doing whatever he needed to do, but he was out there sinning. And so sinning prevents the good, good works. Okay, so we talked about that and that, you can actually shorten your life with sin physically. And that's what James is warning about, that if you continue to persist in this, it'll eventually kill you. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about the death principle because I didn't go into it too much, but I want to talk about that then move on. The death principle, the wages of sin is death. Okay, we all know the passages. Okay, most people take that in an eternal sense. And that's true that sin does lead to eternal death. And what is death in the Hebrew mind? Separation, okay? So hell, the lake of fire, is separation from God, okay? That's what we call death. Physical death is separation of the soul from the body, okay? But most of the passages written to believers in the New Testament is talking or concerning about physical death since they are already have eternal life. So the threat is not about losing or, or you know, never having eternal life. The threat is physical death. Temporal punishment is the warnings. If you read Hebrews, there's five warnings in Hebrews, right? The five warnings in Hebrews is saying, if you guys go back into Judaism and you apostatize, you're going to die an early death. That's the warning in Hebrews. It's not about losing salvation, okay? So that's what we talked about last week. Okay, 
And we talked about what death does. So even in the believer's life, yes, you can prematurely uh, destroy your life. There's no doubt about that. Um, and that's why there's warnings about that. There's also warning, warnings that are, not, I wouldn't call them warnings, but blessings that if you do certain things, you're, you can extend your life. Uh, one of them is the commandment, and it's repeated in the New Testament, of honoring your father and mother so that you will live long. So there's a blessing attached to honoring your parents and actually increases your lifespan. So you can decrease it or increase it based on blessing or based on cursing, okay? So anyway, so where, where are we at? Um, uh, we talked about a, you know, a quintessential example that James talked about. If you see someone, uh, you know, a brother and sister are naked and destitute and you do nothing about it, he goes, that's a picture of dead faith. You're simply not doing anything with your faith. It's just dead. It's inoperative. It's not working. You might say, I'll pray for you, but that's not good enough. That's why he wants you to go further than that. So dead faith is non-working, ineffectual, non-producing, and can't produce their needed result, okay? And then, he, then James 1, he says that, religion is, that, that kind of religion is useless. It doesn't work, and I, I remember I, I, I tacked it on to Laodicea being useless as well. Okay, so now we go to the objector. So before I go to the objector, which gets a little complicated, any questions so far? That's, the, that's just a review, okay? All right. So here comes the objector. And here's the mistake that's in a lot of your Bibles, okay? When you look at the original languages, there is hardly any punctuation whatsoever. There's definitely not quotes in this one right here, okay? So when you look at the original languages, they didn't use the punctuation that we use, okay? So when you have an English translation, it is the translators putting punctuation into it. And this has been one of the most misunderstood passages based on the interpreter's translation, no, sorry, the translator's interpretation of James and putting quotes behind one phrase and leaving out the rest of the phrase. Hence, so the interlocutor or the objector to what James is saying, so James is getting what we call a diatribe. Paul will do this and they actually go into a diatribe because they expect someone to question them what they're stating, okay? So here's the interlocutor, the, the, the objector that James anticipates. But someone will say, Notice where I have the quotes set from your English. That's not in the Greek, okay? There are no quotes like that in the Greek, okay? This is somebody's, this is a translator's interpretation. So remember that. You have faith and I have works. And then they end the quote there. That's actually wrong, the interlocutor that James is using continues his argument. It just doesn't stop there. Where it says, show me your faith without works is not James. That is the interlocutor. That is the arguer of the text coming back to James, okay? And you can see this all together. But, okay, so let's read it without the quotes. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, if you do not understand that that's the interlocutor, you will misinterpret this passage. And you, you could possibly translate this like the Roman Catholic Church does, saying, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Either way, the, you know, the, the, the wrong interpretation, obviously, and every Protestant understands this, is that you are not saved by your works, Right? But the Catholic Church takes this passage and says, see, it's faith plus works, okay? So outright, as a Protestant, you know that's the wrong interpretation because that would contradict Paul. But what, the, what is the interlocutor saying? The, 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 let's start with James. James is making the point that there is a correlation to a believer and what that believer believes to his good works, to what should, and note the word, should result in the life of the believer, okay? Should. He's saying there should be a correlation, and I expect a correlation, as we all should, okay? 
But when I use the word should theologically, what am I allowing? I have to allow for prodigal sons. I have to allow for carnal believers. I have to allow for worldly believers. I have to allow for Laodicea. So I have to allow for those categories. And that's why we use the word in theology terms, should correlate. Should. Because not every believer correlates. Okay? And again, I'm still reserving the wheat and the tares. I'm still reserving that too at the same time. So the interlocutor is saying, hey, look, man, James, you're trying to make a connection between faith and works. My argument back to you is, no matter where I start, you cannot determine what I believe by watching what I do. That's what he's trying to say. He is look, sh- look, if we start with faith without works, you, can't, you still won't know what I believe because you, nothing, nothing, you, you, you can't see inside of me. And then if we start, and I show you my faith by my works, and if we start with my works, my works still don't tell you what I believe. So what the, uh, the interlocutor is trying to say and argue with James is there is no relationship between faith, the believer's faith, and their good works. That's what he's trying to argue. And, that, 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 that's a, that, and that, so James is wrong in saying that there should be a correlation. And then he says this in verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. This is not James talking. This is the interlocutor talking. You do well, James. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so what the interlocutor is trying to say, this is not James. If you think this is James talking, you're going to misinterpret this. The interlocutor is saying, look, man, let me give you two situations, James. Here's one situation. Demons. And then... Uh, believers who believe in one God. Here's, my, here's two examples, James, and you cannot tell, you cannot correlate that believing in God correlates to good works. Because look, one group correlates to good works and the other group believes and it doesn't correlate to good works, a la the demons. So what the demons are doing, they believe in the same God, but notice that, that their faith in God doesn't correlate. So James, you're wrong. You're wrong to make the statement that faith correlates to good works. You're wrong for making that statement. So, like I pointed out here, the objector says there's no correlation between what someone believes and does or what someone does and believes. So it basically doesn't matter where you start. The objector uses the example of humans and demons. They believe in one God, but look at the two different reactions to this belief, thinking that this proves there's no correlation whatsoever. Okay? So the interlocutor is saying this, not James. Now, here's the thing. If you do not put the verse 19 uh, and 18b with the interlocutor, you're going to say that James is arguing this and James is then nullifying the very thing he said in the interlocutor's argument. James is trying to make the point. They are correlated. There is a correlation. So to use verses 18b and 19, if you're going to argue that's James, then James is contradicting himself in the same argument with the interlocutor. And that's been the theological problem brought on by Calvinism. Because Calvinism comes into the text and foists its view on this. And, 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 and what is being foisted on the text that the text is not saying? The Calvinists are foisting the view on it that says this. Your works prove you're saved. So they go into the interpretation like that. We are saying, no, what the scripture is saying is your works should correlate to what you believe. Should correlate. So here's what happens. So in a Calvinist scheme, and you misinterpret James, then he's a classic interpretation. Faith without works is dead, and they interpret dead as not saved, right? Right? Not saved. So their classic response to you, if they see someone get into prodigal son living, was, well, they never were saved to begin with. That proves they're not saved. 
Does that make sense? That's how they, 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 they have put something on the text that's not there. James is not arguing that. All James is arguing is that it should correlate. It should. Okay, with that being said, does any have any, any, any questions? That's, that's fairly complicated uh, to some degree if you've been trained by Calvinists to understand the book of James. Okay, everyone clear as mud, right? Okay. Because, right, the demons believe, but what? It doesn't correlate. So, so, so he's, he, he, the, the, he's expecting this argumentation. He says, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Faith should correlate to good works. Okay. So then he uses two examples. One is Abraham. The second one is Rahab. As an example that faith correlates, wait, living faith correlates to good works. Living faith, okay, correlates to good works. Dead faith doesn't produce any works, okay? So here's where it correlates. Now, James is now responding to the interlocutor. This, in verse 20, is him responding. Not any sooner. But uh, I'll take a message. Uh, but do, do you want to know, oh foolish man? Okay, so you can definitely tell something has changed in the text, right? Something's changed in the text where he's now going back to the interlocutor and calling the man, you're a fool. You're a foolish man. But do you, know, do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Okay, so if there's nothing, so if there's not a correlation, then the person's faith is dead. Doesn't mean they're lost, it just means it's dead. So if the person has a living faith, it correlates into works. Okay, here's here's the example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now stop right there. If he's using the term justified by works, you can see how the Catholics would get this and say you must have faith and works to be saved. But what does the theological term mean when James says, do you see that Abraham our father is justified by works? How are you saved? You're justified by your faith. You're not justified by your works in etern- for eternal salvation, right? We, we all understand that. Faith alone is how you are forensically justified in order to have eternal life, to be born again, yeah. So Paul, that's Paul's argument, right? Uh, all through the epistles. But now James is coming to you and saying, do you not see that Abraham was justified by works? So what's that? It, he cannot be talking about salvation, he can't because he would be contradicting Paul in, in the corpus of the New Testament and Jesus. Believe in me and I will give you eternal life. That's the corpus of salvation. That's how you become justified by faith. But now he's using a different term, justified by works. What could he possibly mean then? Well, again, remember the argumentation. He is trying to state that people who have a living faith it correlates into good works and they do amazing things. People who don't have a dead faith, it doesn't correlate. Okay, so look what he says. When he offered Isaac his son, his son on the altar, that's how Abraham justified himself by works. Is when that was the, the, the last act of Abraham's life really uh, the big act of faith for Abraham, right, was to offer up Isaac. That's it. You know, it, it, the, the whole story of Abraham builds up to this point of offering his only son, okay? But when he does this, it justifies him by works. What is it justifying? Well, let's see. First of all, when you're justified by works, that has nothing to do with God. 
justifying by faith has to do with God. Justified by works has to do with another entity. And who would that be? Man. So we get the concept of justification by works is not related to God, but it is related to mankind as they watch what you do. And you are then, as you have living faith and do the good works, they will see your good works and it will justify you before men. You watching this? This is a horizontal issue, not a vertical issue that Calvinists want to make James into. Second Corinthians talks about this, and many passages do, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but what? Also in the sight of men. Okay, look at this one. Repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in what sight? In the sight of all men. First Timothy talks about a bishop. He talks about a, a deacon. But notice the phraseology that Paul is using with, with Timothy. A bishop or a pastor must be blameless. Blameless means what? Blameless in front of God? No, the word blameless means that no man can make an accusation against the person that they're in sin. So blameless is a term on a horizontal level. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are what? Outside. Not a good testimony among God. That's a given. It's a good testimony among those who are the outside or that are in the community. Lest what? He fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Who would reproach him? It's not God he's talking about. He's talking about men. That men would reproach him. Humanity would saying, look, man, you claim this and... and, and um, and you don't live it out, it's a reproach to them. Now, we're not, denying, we're not denying their salvation, but as you can see, it's a bad witness. Does that make sense? A reproach would be like, you're a bad witness for the Lord. No one's questioning your salvation. We're questioning your testimony, you know, if you're a prodigal son. And then he goes on to the deacons, but let these deacons also first be tested. How? Who's testing them? God? No, men. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Blameless would have to do with a testimony before men. That's what the term means, that you're blameless before people. They can't make an accusation against you. You're living clean. You're doing the works that God has told you to do. Okay, so now that you see something that the Calvinists apparently refuse to look at, and even the Arminians are, are, are bad for this, you now start seeing that, oh, one is justified before God by faith. And then on the horizontal level, you as a believer are justified before men with the good works that you do that correlates to living faith. Okay, let's continue on. Watch what Abraham does. Do you see that his faith was working together with works and by works was made perfect? Now, again, you could read this passage wrongly and use the word perfect and saying, see, he got saved and that made him perfect. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. The Greek is very clear. Um, the Greek word is where we get the word. Uh, uh, it's teleo, teleo. And it's where we get, you know, get the, word, the, the concept of coming to an end, bringing something to an end. I guess I could relate it that way. Um, we, we, the, this is the goal, I guess, would be another example of what this Greek word, uh, teleo, I'm not pronouncing right. It's got two O's in it. And it's so hard to pronounce. It's teleoa. There we go. Teleoa. With that last one, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Anyway, it, it, but what, what it means is to get mature. It doesn't mean that I've reached perfection. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, I'm saved. It doesn't mean that. It means that 
over the course of Abraham's life, he has been tested and tested, as we're studying on Sunday morning, he's been tested, and, he, and he's making mistakes, right? But then he does good, they don't make a mistake, and he's, his faith is building, his faith is building, it's building, it's growing, he's cooperating, right? To the finally, the final test of his faith is when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. And what it's proving as his faith and correlates to his works it is showing you that Abraham has reached a certain stage and he has crossed it by offering Isaac to God as a sacrifice, as requested by God. He's reached a certain stage in justification before men. Okay? So keep that in your mind. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, so we're, again, why is he throwing that in? Because that's true. In Genesis 15, that's showing that Abraham was saved. That's true. Okay, so that's, but that's step one. What James is trying to say is, first of all, if you're going to be on this path to reach maturity, you have to do the first thing first. You have to get saved. So James is, is recounting, okay, so we know Abraham was saved, but now he's reached a point where his faith has been matured and he's justified before men, which gives him a certain status. Okay, so step one, salvation. Step two, and he was called the friend of God. Step two, the maturity. The end result, the, the, the bringing everything to a head, the goal was finally reached. Not that he is perfected, please don't understand that, but that he now had crossed the line to where everybody knew that Abraham has the moniker of friend of God. And now Abraham, because he is considered by humans the friend of God, is now justified before men because he's a friend of God. This friend of God status is only given to those who pass the ultimate tests in their life. Not every, every, not every believer reaches the teleos of their life, reaches the end goal or end result. But Abraham finally did. The goal for you is to reach your end to where you are justified before men. You're already justified before God by faith. The goal for you in your sanctification is to be justified before for men because then they will notice that you have a special relationship with the one true God. Abraham is now called a friend of God at this point. All believers are not called friends of God. I know there's songs out there. I am a friend of God. No, you're not. No, you're not. Only certain people get that status. Only those like Abraham. You can get it. You can be considered a friend of God, but here's what you have to do. If you watch the life of Abraham, you must continue to pursue the living faith that produces good works that continues to drive you forward till finally no one can deny that this one here is a friend of God. There's no doubt about it because your life is such beyond reproach that, that everyone knows your faith. Everyone knows that you will always do the right thing. Everyone on the outside, I'm talking, I'm not talking about the internal. Justification for men is external, right? It's external because men can't see your heart. But from a human standpoint, there's nothing that they could criticize Abraham at this point in his life. They could criticize him for the earlier parts of his life. But once he reaches this point, the dude's gold in front of men, in front of men. Okay, not in front of God. You're never perfect. But do you understand where I'm arguing from? I'm arguing from a horizontal level, not a vertical level, because we're always going to be falling short, right? But before men, you can reach a status of friend of God. Okay, Now, the disciples uh, actually got the term too after spending three and a half years with the Messiah. He says, I now call you friends. Remember that? He hadn't called them friends before. Disciples, apostles. 
But it was after, right before he gets crucified, he goes, I now call you my friends, okay? So it's after three and a half years that they get that status as well. And then you, the book of Acts confirms this because they knew that Peter and some of them that had stood before the Sanhedrin were unlearned men. And they said, we noticed that not only they're unlearned, but they have been with Jesus, friend of God. That's the reason they could argue the way they could argue. That's the reason they could stand before the Sanhedrin and whatnot. They were with him and they were his friend. So he goes on, he says, uh, he, you, it's, a, it's a maturity issue, works corresponding. And verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Okay? So again, the interlocutor is saying, you can't tell anything from someone's life. And James is saying, no, you can. There's a correlation. You can actually, you can tell who's a friend of God by the good works they do. And, and, and what would that tell you if you're a friend of God? That Abraham's faith is living. It doesn't tell you whether the person's saved or not. That's not the issue. It's telling you whether it's a living faith or a dead faith. Now, take a step back and apply that. Take a step back from that theology and then start applying that. Now, let's apply it outwardly before we go inwardly. You start looking around on the landscape of Christianity in America, okay? The average American is what we, uh, the average Christian in America is what we consider Laodicea, okay? They're useless. Their works do not correlate to what they believe. So they have a dead faith. They're saved, but they have a dead faith. They don't produce anything. They may sharpen pencils, but that's not the skill set that they're designed for, right? They're not doing what they're designed to do. And hence, they're useless to the Lord. He can't use them. They think they're being used, but they're actually not being used. They're sitting around wasting their life. Look, man, all of life is a sacrifice. All of it. So you're either going to sacrifice to the Lord or you're going to sacrifice to an idol. It's either one. And the idol might be a sacrifice to yourself. So you either get busy sacrificing to the Lord or you, may, you continue to sacrifice to yourself and you'll get your rewards here, but you won't get them in the next life, okay? And that's how Laodicea is functioning right now. They're getting their best life now. They're not willing to postpone gratification for the future. They're not willing to sacrifice today for eternity, that's what we call a worldly Christian or a Laodicean. They're not willing to make the sacrifice. How did Abraham get to the point to be called friend of God? Because in order to follow God by faith, you have to sacrifice. And who did he sacrifice? He's willing to sacrifice his son. You see the blending of good works that in order, in order to do the good works, you have to be willing to sacrifice something to God. You have to be willing to give up that which is most precious to you to be called friend of God. And only when you give up the most precious thing in your life that you're willing to sacrifice to God and put it on the altar like Abraham did his son, then you get the moniker. But if you don't, you're not willing to do that, that's fine. That's your choice. But don't expect that status when you get to heaven. Friend of God means that that person went all the way. They were willing to sacrifice the most precious thing to them. Now, let me ask you this. Again, I've, always, I've repeated myself. What is the most precious thing to you? That you're, that, what, what is it? What is the most precious thing to you that you're not willing to sacrifice? That, or sorry, let, not, not you, but Laodicea is not willing to sacrifice. What is it? Their car? Their house? No. No, it's something more than that themselves the most precious things human have humans have is their life and jesus said this he who is willing to give up his life or will gain it but if you're not willing to lose your life you won't gain anything and that and that and that seems like a paradoxical statement i think you get it because if you're not willing to lose your life What's most, most important to you is you. If you're not willing to lose your life, 
in order to gain a real life, the abundant life that he's speaking about, then you'll never, you, you won't sacrifice. You will not put yourself on the altar. See, you're supposed to be, according to Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice. But what's the problem with the living sacrifice? It crawls off the altar because it's living. They don't stay up there. They crawl off. Oh, I don't want to sacrifice today. So they pull themselves off the altar, right? So what you have to understand then, what James is saying is, look, he gave up the most precious thing in his life, his own son. And plus the promise was predicated on him being alive. So how did, how did Abraham do that? If he's going to be the son that the seed's going through, the Abrahamic covenant's going through him, create the nation of Israel that we're going to celebrate this, this Sunday, 75 years, right? Uh, for the rebirth, we're going to celebrate that on, on uh, Sunday. Um, how's Abraham going to do that? So first of all, he's willing to sacrifice, but there's something else going on. In order to do the good work of sacrifice, I must have faith. Thank you very much. And what does the writer of Hebrews says he believed about sacrificing Yitzhak? What did he believe? That's right. He believed that God would resurrect him. That if he killed him, then... then, So Abraham reasoned correctly that if God is asking me to do this, then obviously if he's the, the, the blessing and he's the seed, then God must must have the power to resurrect him back to life. And that's what Abraham thought. And his faith is what correlated, that living faith is what correlated into a good work that required the ultimate sacrifice. At the end of the day, it begins with that kind of faith. A willing, and then that faith causes you to sacrifice and do the good work in the sacrifice. So the good work always will have a sacrifice in it. So like, like I'm saying, if the Lord's called you to do something, and let's say you do a good work, so you're back there stirring Kool-Aid, okay? And if you're a good Kool-Aid stirrer, God bless you, and that's your talent, then I'm not, I'm not getting on to you. That's great, okay? But anyone can stir, stir Kool-Aid. What can you do personally that no one else can do? You see what I'm saying? What is your unique talent that no one else has the ability to do? That's where you belong. But let me tell you the, the secret. To get there, you've got to be willing to sacrifice because you're never going to get there. So you can keep back there stirring Kool-Aid, but here's the thing. It's a good work, yeah, but here's the question. What sacrifice does it make of you personally to stir the Kool-Aid? You get what I'm saying? So whatever you're called to do, you're, you're, you're asked to sacrifice the most precious thing to you. Is stirring Kool-Aid the most precious thing to you? Is that what you're saying? You see what I'm saying? So when you start then going personal on you, we've talked about Laodicea, we know where they're at. Then you start looking at yourself, you're like, okay, what am I not willing to sacrifice for this thing that God wants me to do? Oh, because I don't have the time and you make excuses or, you know, I, I just don't know. Uh, God's going to hammer me if I, if I do that. Oh, so you're going to do the whole thing of bearing your talent because why? You're afraid. And then you're lazy. And then that bears into why you don't sacrifice. Because you're afraid and you're lazy. And people who are afraid and lazy don't sacrifice anything. Because they're always playing it safe. And so you see a man is justified by his works, not by faith only. Getting saved is just the beginning now, people say, well, Brandon, we're, you know, we're close to the rapture and we're going to go to heaven. What does it matter? Well, let me tell you something. It does matter. Not, we talk about rewards, but what do you think you're getting prepped for? What do you think this is all about? It's only for this life? Oh, no, 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 no. You're being trained right now for the kingdom age. So everything you're learning right now goes with you. So you will remember your Wednesday nights. You will remember studying your Bible. You will remember your interactions with people because that's the information that he's training you now to be the perfect ruler with him as you co-reign with him in the Messianic kingdom. 
And you will think about, okay, I remember that time where I had to deal with that knucklehead and that knucklehead. Well, guess what? I'm in the kingdom and there's another Gentile knucklehead right here. And he's doing the same thing. And so Christ, because you'll have instant communication with Christ and probably the Lord will say, how did you handle it back on earth, uh, in, in your day? Well, we messed up here. Okay, don't do that again. Now do this. Okay, we're going to do this to you because you're going to rule with a rod of iron. So everything you're, you're doing now is prepping for that, for that age. This is not just where it ends and then you just die. That's, 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 that's a horrible outlook. And it's too short-sighted, okay? It's just too short-sighted. So anyway, what else happens? Likewise, second example. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the uh, another way. Well, yeah. So, so, so Rahab, as you know, um, saved the spies. She had already heard about Yahweh's work. Uh, you know uh, what happened in the Exodus that spread like wildfire, and had heard about uh, you know the the, the the Jews and and their victories and and what was happening, and so she believed. She believed before they got there. Okay. So this is not about Rahab being saved. She already is saved. She believes in the God of Israel. She's very much afraid. And that's why, because she believes and she has a living faith, it correlates to her saving the spies. Now, let me ask you what the sacrifice was as she did this good work. What was the sacrifice? She went against the government of, 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 of the place, right? Jericho. King of Jericho, you're not, these are enemies, the Israelites are enemies. So she hides the enemies and she's sacrificing what to hide them? Her life. He who will gain his life will lose it. Same pattern. She's willing to lose her life to save these Jewish spies that she has never met, but she knows they're the people of God. So she believes in Yahweh, the Jewish God, understands he's the God of all and says, I'm going to help these people that I have never met because they're God's people. And she's willing to sacrifice her life. That's Corey Ten Boom. That's the Christians in the Nazi Holocaust. Here's these Jews. I'm going to help them. And it's today. It's today. It's the same thing, same principle. Why, when I got saved, do I have an instantaneous love for the Jews, even though they're in unbelief? Why? Because I believe in a Jewish Messiah. And so even though I believe, it translates into my good works, and my good works says protect the Jews, honor the Jews, they're God's people, even though they're in unbelief and rebellion. Oh, okay, I see how it works. So that's what happens to her. She didn't know them from Adam, right? But she's willing to sacrifice a good work to prove. And James is proving this. And then he ends this. For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also or non-operative or not producing ineffectual. And that's his argument. And he makes a brilliant argument. It's beautiful if you understand it correctly and not from a Calvinist standpoint. Any other questions before I move on? I want to end on one more thing. Go for it. Would it be a, a correlation from what God did to the Jews when they went around the mountain 40 years and what's happening now with these uh, Joe Osteen, Joyce Myers, and they're, they're getting, God is putting a punishment on them. This is what you want to listen to? This is what you're going to get. Yeah. And, and that's, that's because of a lack of faith in his word and a lack of submission to his word. And so he gives people what they want, the tickling of the ears. You're totally right. And so the, the, the concept then is um, you have to have faith in the proper things. And that's why Paul starts with theology. What's the problem with those? They're false teachers and they give false theology. So people would rather believe in false theology than real theology and fake it. See, what Richard just pointed out is a good illustration of Laodicea, okay? So if you have bad theology, or let's say you're deficient in your theology, so like, you know, 
you're at a baby level or something like that. And you, you can't tell the difference between a job and Job, okay? So you're at that level. You don't know the difference, okay? And, and, and you've been a Christian for 30 years, right? So, so here you are, 30 years as a Christian. You can't tell the difference between the two. And, and then what, what do you think those works look like? It's pitiful. It's actually pitiful. It's almost non-existent. I'm not saying the person's not saved, but it would be non-existent because the theology, like we talked about, your theology helps you to do greater things. If you want to do greater works, you have to build your theology. If you do not build your theology, then you're limited in the works that you actually can do. Hence, if you follow a false teacher and they're teaching you wrong, you are now limiting yourself in the potential of the talents you could maximize. So you're never going to reach the five talents. So you're not going to fulfill all the five talents because you're deficient in your theology. So this is the, the, uh, the second downer for those who follow false teachers who are believers. Yeah. Paul, yes. Yes, Pastor. Uh, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world that say, look at me, I'm doing all these great things. <laughs> yeah. and then you have the God or Jesus saying, without me, you can do nothing. Right. And I would like you to enter, maybe talk more about that. Sure. Okay. So when Jesus says that, um, he's using the vine illustration, he's talking to Israel at that time. And, uh, and you, we make a personal application from that too. And the idea is that with, without, when you don't do things correctly, submission, obedience to the Lord, you're not abiding by him. Cause that's the word he uses in that text, John 15, abide in me, right? Abide in me. And then you can produce fruit. If you do not abide as a believer, then you won't produce fruit. So you're, you're totally right. What does it mean to abide though? And then you can produce. You have to, this is a prerequisite for producing fruit is that you must abide in the Messiah. It's two things. You must abide in what his word says. What he says is theology. And then you must obey. So abiding has a twofold aspect. You have to understand the theology and you have to obey the theology. Okay? And so if, he says, if you abide in me and I in you, fellowship not salvation, fellowship, because the prerequisite for him abiding in you is what? If you abide in me. So we're not talking about salvation all of a sudden. We're talking about discipleship or fellowship. So abiding, in order to fellowship with the Lord, you must abide, and that means I believe correctly and I obey it correctly. And then I'm abiding, and then I can produce fruit. Now, wait a second. What kind of fruit are you talking about? Because I want to I hammer that, what you just said. What kind of fruit? Will it be nickels and noses? Will I be able to grow a mega church at that point, pastor? Will I be able to have 100 people in my Bible study? No. The spiritual fruit he's talking about is spiritual, therefore you can't measure it. You cannot measure how someone's growing. All you can do is observe it from the outside. But you can't pull a ruler down and you can't do this and you can't do metrics with it. And unfortunately, the American church is all about metrics. But how do I measure whether or not you're, you're, you have gotten rid of a root of bitterness inside of you? How do I measure that? All I can do is if I work with you and we get, we get past it, then there's a great victory. But I can't put that on a, on a, a, a metric. Hey, my church got five roots out this week. What? What are you talking about? They wouldn't even understand what you're saying, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make, what do they want to know? How many did you have and how much money did you bring in? That is not even, not even the metrics of God. That's of the world. You might as well run a business. And so the kind of fruit will not be, well, 70,000 people go to Joel Einstein's church. I was in Oklahoma, as you know, talking to that pastor there, the remnant church. And the biggest church in Oklahoma is probably bigger than Joel Osteen's, by the way. Several campuses. I think it's called Life Church or something like that. It's a big hoopla uh, uh, of nothing. And, you know, you go there, motivational speech, rock concert, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> you know, they're the largest church in, in, in the, the nation. But they don't produce anything as far as spiritual fruit is concerned, discipleship or anything like that. What they're producing is useless believers. 
or, or, or terrors, one of the two. So do not be confused with money and nickel. I call it nickels and noses versus true, true metrics, so to speak, of spiritual growth because you can't measure that. How would I know? How, okay, so here's this funny thing. I was having a conversation at lunch. We're talking, Rory and I, with Gordon. Is Gordon here? Okay. And we're talking over lunch about ministry and different things like that. Um, the only way I would know if someone is growing, because I can't have, do metrics on them, is if I had a relationship with them. And only through the relationship would I know if that person is growing. You see how that's different. You have, so if I, in order to see that fruit, I got to be in a relation, which, which a lot of people don't want to be in relation with anybody. Well, if you can't be in relationship, you'll never see the fruit not only in your own life, but in other people's lives. So your best metric is just simply to measure bodies, head counts, and money. Oh, but you see, Joel Osteen is not gonna have a relationship with you and take you to lunch and have a conversation about how you're growing because he doesn't know you. And neither do any of those megachurch pastors. They just don't know you. And so how can they measure anything if they don't have a relationship? You see how, it's, how what Christianity has turned into? Now, let me end on this. Exodus 24, 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. But that's the wrong translation. The first part is right. All that the Lord has said, we will do. That's what it says in the Hebrew. We will do it. But the Hebrew is shama. And shama. That's where we get the word shema. Hear, O Lord. Hear, hear. It says in Hebrew, shama. We will be, we will do what you tell us to do and we will hear you. The hearing in the Hebrew is not just, I hear auditory. Like when I talk, you talk to your kids, do you hear me? <laughs> do you say that to your kids? Okay, do you hear me? What are you implying? You understand me, right? Okay. The Hebrew is the Shema, hero Israel. Shema, that's the Shema, right? Shema. So we will do and we will shema, Lord. We will understand you. We will hear and understand. Wait a second. Notice the order. We will do and then we will understand. Don't miss it. What's the order? We will do first and we will hear or understand second. In order to know it, you must do it. But in order to do it, you have to believe. So if you believe, then you'll do it. And after you do it, you understand. It's not the opposite. Does that make sense? That's how your life is supposed to be. Because he says, trust me. And, 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 and okay, I'll do it, Lord. I believe in your character, even though I don't understand. But after I do it, I will understand, and that will increase my faith. But in order to do the good work, you're not going to understand all the implications, are you? I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to go into it somewhat blindly, uh, somewhat. I'll have some information, like Abraham knew he would, that God would resurrect Isaac, but he didn't know when. There was a lot of other details that were missing. Would it be later on, a thousand years from now? When would he resurrect him? He didn't know. He just knew, he believed that God had the power to resurrect him, and that's it. Okay? So the other details were left by faith. And that's what God is trying to say to you and I, and James is trying to say in your manner of life. There's going to be things that God tells you to do and you're going to say, I don't understand. And he's going to say, you're not here to understand. Just do it. 
And then once you do it, you will understand after it's done. Ah, thank you. That's how it works. But it has to start with faith. The only reason you would do something and not understand it is because you trust the person telling you to do it. Right? You have to do that. So the principle will end on this. Act on what God says by faith, okay? And then, you will, uh, and then you will fully understand afterwards. This produces a transformation, basically. So by faith, you practice what God wants you to become. By faith, you practice what God wants you to become. That's what good works are doing. They're pr- you're practicing. And what is the good works practicing you for? A friend of God or becoming more like Christ. So... I know that's a, 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 a weird concept, but it, it, again, it's not weird in a sense from it's, it's spiritual. It's not a, a conventional understanding. See, in conventional understanding, outside, humans say, tell me and reason with me that I can understand and then I will move forward, right? That's how humans think. I want to know all the information for, beforehand before I make a move. And then that's how they act. That's how people act in business, right? That's how people act in politics. I want all the information, then I'll act. Not with God. Not with God. Believe, do it, and then you'll understand after it's over. Oh, there you go. Take a five-minute break. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.